Welcome to the Infinite Spark of Being podcast. My name is Keith Welsh, and in this episode, I'm going to talk to you about karma. This, uh, this again, is just a way of looking at karma. It's my understanding of it, nothing more. So, you know, always question, always challenge, and always feel free to reach out. So let's look at our less than mystical understanding of karma. Um, And I like to start with the kind of less than mystical or demystification of these things first, and then we can kind of look at the mystical end of it. I I feel like it's, it's better to do it that way so that we at least have an understanding of how these things apply especially when we're talking to somebody who doesn't have uh, a mystical bend, you know, um, I believe these things can be understood and in more of a clinical, clinical way. Uh, so, uh, karma is all of our predisposed attractions and aversions. And based on what we've learned about the mind so far, these attractions and aversions are within the subconscious. Um, and yet, just to refresh our memory, the subconscious mind is a data bank. Uh, it's it's our beliefs, our preferences, our memories, all that good stuff. It's essentially the lens that we view the world through. It's it's why we look for certain things in a room, certain traits in other humans, um, why we feel an attraction to certain ideologies, and so forth and so on. Uh, but the real kicker is that none of this stuff is in our conscious awareness. We think that we're deciding stuff when actually we're not. Uh, that's why I refer to it as our operating system. It's, it's kind of uh, happening in the background. Like when you use a computer, you're not thinking about the operating system all the time, but you are experiencing the operating system while you're using the computer. Now, uh, this doesn't mean that we can't bring aspects of the subconscious mind into our conscious awareness or into our conscious mind. But it does take a certain amount of persistent conscious effort and a lot of space between stimulus and response, which we'll get into. So that's our kind of clinical definition of karma. It's essentially our habits of mind, all of our patterns of thought. So um, we're imprinted through various means with certain kinds of thoughts or patterns of thought that keep showing up causing us to react in various ways that then create uh, certain experiences for us over and over again. Um, However, once we begin to clear that karma or change that response, we begin to have different experiences. And with those experiences come new neural pathways. Uh, These neural pathways show the mind that other routes, other options are possible. And that is what will create new thoughts uh, through a new understanding. Now, moving on to our more mystical or metaphysical understanding of karma, um, we need to look at our spiritual anatomy. So there is the gross material body that's composed of particles and molecules and atoms and meat, blood, bone. uh, And then we have what's known as the subtle body. And that's actually where the mind is. Um, That is where the karma sits. It's um, well, the subtle body contains the karma, or 
what we know as the mind. Um, then we have the soul, and we all know what the soul is. We don't need to get into that, at least not yet. But we do need to understand uh, that the soul transmigrates from birth to birth, and it takes the subtle body or the mind with it. That is the karma. So that's how the soul is traveling with its karma. Um, again, it's, a, it's an interface. So, um, so let's look at these six cognitive faculties again, right? Um, there's judgment, perception, consciousness, language, memory, and thinking. So if that stuff is held within the subconscious, or I'm sorry, within the subtle body, then what the soul takes with it from birth to birth is all of its judgments, all of its perceptions, uh, what it's conscious and unconscious of, its language, its memory, and its thinking. Um, and it, language is weird, right? Like language and memory. So just let me explain that real quick because the language and the memory kind of go together because language is so language. And in this context, language isn't uh, English or Spanish. Language is much more than that. Um, let's say, for instance, there's an object and we'll call it a widget. Now, you've never seen a widget. Your mind has absolutely no context for this object. But when I show you this object, I say, this is a widget, it's used for this, it does this, and it serves this purpose, and it's bad, for instance. Now, uh, when you enter the room, and let's say uh, there's a widget present, and let's, I'm not in the room to describe it to you, right? Well, then you experience my description of the widget, and that description is based on memory. So... If I said that a widget is bad, when you see the widget, your body might tense up out of fear. So in that moment, what your body is experiencing is the effect of the language that I used to describe this object to you. That's really how we experience language. And that's all memory. So um, it's descriptions and symbols uh, that are rooted in our memory. And uh, as for this widget analogy, I mean... You know, apply it to aspects of your personality. Are there things that you or things about you that people told you were bad? So every time you encounter that piece of yourself, you experience their description of you and not really your description of you. So not to digress too much, but I just wanted to toss that out there. So that's language and memory. And that's some of what the subtle body contains within it. And that's what it brings along during transmigration. So karma is the mind. Uh, karma is the program. It's the soul's course of study. It's a curriculum for the soul. And just like in school, it, uh, you have to repeat a class until you pass it, right? That's why you see certain problems popping up repeatedly for you in the same birth. I mean, we don't even need to really concern ourselves with past lives. Uh, we can see it all right here in this birth within these attractions and aversions. You know, it doesn't uh, doesn't necessarily matter how we got here. This is what we're dealing with, right? I mean, whether you're a Nefertiti or Julius Caesar doesn't matter if you're experiencing these things. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's interesting to you. I don't know. So, um, so anyway, our attachment to thought on top of our aversion to how those thoughts make the body feel is what keeps us in a loop doing the same things over and over again and experiencing the same outcome over and over again. That's karma. 
right? So karma isn't what happened. It's how the mind related to it, right? And remember, the mind mistakes the data for the event and the mind sends a signal into the body and that's where that body comes in. So how did the mind respond to it? Did the mind spiral and whirl out of control uh, or was it steady? Did the body become tight? Uh, well, if the body did become tight, were you compelled to change it? Could you resist the urge to change it, to swap it out for something more preferential? Or could you ride that wave and allow it to change on its own? Well, if you couldn't ride the wave and let it change on its own, it's just because you don't have that habit of doing that yet. Uh, it's all just patterns of behavior, patterns of thought. Uh, it's just neural pathways. It's not a mystical scorekeeping system. No one is up in the clouds keeping a tally of all the dumb shit you do and then punishing you for it. The only one keeping a tally of this stuff is you. In fact, if it wasn't for your preferences and opinions, karma wouldn't be good or bad. It would just be. So really, when we talk about clearing karma, we're talking about working with those preferences and opinions and hopefully working towards equanimity. Um, and... Uh, if you don't know what equanimity means, equanimity simply means that we don't have a strong emotional response one way or the other. It means that we have uh, evenness of temper. Uh, at least I believe that's what it says in the definition, evenness of temper. So now this doesn't mean that we don't have an opinion about what happened or uh, what happens or what's happening. It just means that we don't fly off the handle every time something does happen. But really, um, you know, after years of practice, I think everyone still has something that pushes them off the beam and, and fucks with them. I don't think that we're ever truly clear of all of our karma. Um, maybe some people do. I, I'm certainly not one of those people. So what we're doing here is cultivating equanimity in order to clear karma. Equanimity allows us to clear the karma because it gives us space between stimulus and response and that allows us to do something different. So this brings us right back to Viktor Frankl again. Uh, between stimulus and response, there's a space, and in that space lies our growth and our freedom. Um, and another great quote that applies to karma uh, that I use often, and it, it really uh, applies to what we're trying to do here, is by a main name, um, Eknath Eshawan, and I'm certain I just ruined his last name. <laughs> um, but his uh, actually his commentary in the Bhagavad Gita to me is my favorite. And his quote says, life holds us hostage when we're hypersensitive to appearances in a world of constant change. And that basically means that if I need it to look a certain way in order for me to be happy, then this is going to be a very difficult time for me, right? Um, again, our attachment to our preferences and opinions, as well as our inability to be with the body while it feels the responses to those trains of thought seems to be the real problem, not what happened, right? The physical manifestation of our thinking in the form of tension in the body due to anxiety, etc., seems to be the reason we can't get enough space between stimulus and response. There isn't enough room when we're attached to quelling those sensations, forcing the sensation to subside by some outside means. But, you know, if we were less attached to getting rid of that discomfort that's brought on by the mind, uh, we'd be able to sit and witness the sensations in the body and see that eventually, like everything else, they pass. I mean, 
I believe that, um, personally, I believe that noticing and watching the body during times of stress and not seeking to change that feeling so quickly is really vital in creating enough space to change the karma. When I think about sadness, for instance, and, and how, uh, how it's felt to be really sad about something, I think more about how my body felt at that time, not so much about what my mind was doing. So really what we want to do is learn to sit with our emotions. Um, and I like this language of sitting with it rather than sitting in it a little better. Um, sitting in it sounds like you took a shit on the floor. <laughs> now you're wallowing in it, right? Uh, sitting with it sounds more like sadness pulled up a chair and you hung out with it for a little while, right? Uh, you sat with sadness and let sadness tell its story. Um, in other words, you're learning to hold the space for sadness or hold the space for the body while the feelings of sadness kind of wash through it um, or holding the space for the mind, right? Uh, this is another, uh, another time where our meditation practice comes in handy. Um, if we have a steady meditation practice, then we're used to sitting with the mind and with the body as they are. Uh, we've practiced not ruminating over things. Um, if I'm experiencing sadness, there's this heavy sensation in my body. And every time my mind wanders away from the sensation in my body and begins ruminating on why I'm sad, who made me sad, and how they could have avoided making me sad and all that, then I bring it back to the sensation in the body and just see it as sensation, come back to my breath. And it's, it's very important uh, that we refer to it as sensation and not something that's good or bad, um, not pleasant or bad feeling. It's just a sensation, you know. Um, if I get lost ruminating on why I'm sad and who made me sad, I could easily slip into anger and resentment. If I slip into a secondary, uh, secondary emotion like anger and I'm left with this unprocessed vibrating ball of sadness that sits in my gut and eventually vibrates to the point where I fall apart, it's like having, this, it's like having undigested whatever in your stomach and you're just piling things on top of it. Um, you know, the sadness doesn't become anger. It's just anger on top of sadness. Um, and the way Krishna actually describes it to Arjuna um, in, the, in the Gita, he says, um, I believe he says about these uh, people that Arjuna is asking him about, these people that have cultivated this equanimity. Krishna says, uh, when sorrow comes on, they allow sorrow to come, but they do not push sorrow away. When happiness comes, they allow happiness to come, but they don't cling to the happiness. That like the ocean, all of the streams and rivers flow into the ocean, but the ocean never oversteps its bounds. Um, that was obviously before um, ocean rise, but <laughs> sea level rise. Um, I, you, know, you get the point. I, I, hope it's, I hope this is making sense. So um, back to our spiritual anatomy. If the soul uh, is working out its curriculum through the subtle body or the mind, then equanimity seems to be the way we do that. Uh, work through that karma, rather work through that curriculum. That equanimous space allows us a different outcome. It allows us to liberate the soul from things that keep the body in a reactive state. Again, the body and the mind are what the soul is using to work this out. So this working out of the curriculum 
by way of the body and the mind is what's enunciated in the Bhagavad Gita by Krishna as karma yoga. Yoga meaning to come into union with God, truth, or source, whatever language you're using, is done uh, through our day-to-day lives. It's the choices we make. So by simply being alive and working with equanimity, we're liberating the soul and allowing it to work through, through that class, so to speak. So, um, and this is important because spiritual practices like karma yoga are meant to be the practice of dying, the practice of cultivating enough witness consciousness or equanimity so that at the time of death, the body can be dropped without grasping and clinging to sense pleasures. That's why mastering the senses is mentioned so often in these texts. There's a great quote by a Buddhist teacher, and I can't remember the name, but it says, enjoyment isn't the problem, craving is the problem. And we can feel that one, right? Craving for more sense pleasures. I can only imagine being faced with your own mortality and, and thinking about like the last time you're going to do this or the last time you're going to do that. Um, I purposefully put myself mentally in those situations, both with my father's death and my mother's death. When I think about... When my mom checked into the hospital, she didn't think she wasn't going home, right? She thought she was going home. So, so, uh, and so this is why meditation is called the practice of death. Uh, during meditation, you know, we learn to watch the mind and body without labeling and categorizing and judging. We're learning to simply watch. Uh, we're learning to calmly abide with what is and. And we're doing it without pushing and pulling and creating that frantic energy that causes us to create more unpleasantness out of already unpleasant situations. So even with without the great reward at the time of death, whether it's mansions and streets of gold or higher realms, what have you, you know, clearing the karma can be an exercise for good mental health. Like we can take the spirituality right out of this. You know, learning to train the mind and to create space between our feelings and actions, that's beneficial. You know, I mean, that's everything, you know. So to recap, uh, karma isn't what happened. It's how the mind reacted to it. And it reacted to it the way it always does due to its attractions and aversions. And these attractions and aversions are programmed into the subconscious. And that subconscious is held in the subtle body. And remember, the subtle body is what transmigrates with the soul from birth to birth. Uh, The karma uh, is the uh, course of study, as we said, uh, for the soul. It's the work of the soul or you depending on how closely you identify with the soul. But if the idea, you know, for a lot of people, the idea of soul is a difficult thing to get their heads around, it's not necessary in order to understand how karma or predisposed patterns of thought can affect your life. I mean, you know, just know that this present moment is the result of the previous present moment. You know, you set this one up with your actions and thoughts in the previous And that can be a painful thing to look at, but I mean, it's not like a finger wagging thing. It's just, you know, there's patterns here. Now, and remember the more equanimity we cultivate and the more we let go of our preferences and opinions about these things, the more karma we clear and the freer we get. Uh, And we begin doing that through a meditative practice, which I'll be going over in another episode. So for now, uh, that's it for karma for now. (laughs) Um, Remember, always reach out. 
um, always ask questions, always push me to explain myself if I'm unclear about something. It's, it's my responsibility to explain myself to you. It's not your responsibility to figure out what I'm saying, right? So uh, go to the website, theinfinitesparkofbeing.com for books, t-shirts, and things like that. There's also a link to the Patreon there if you want to donate $1 or $5 a month. If you have any ideas for tiers or things you'd like me to do, either on Patreon or the podcast, please let me know. Um, I have tossed around in my head the idea of doing a Zoom group once a month um, through Patreon. I think that might be fun. Follow me on Instagram at the Infinite Spark of Being and all the other social media things. <laughs> and uh, give me a shout. You know, we've known each other for a very long time. Don't make it weird. <laughs>